The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter, your host for today. And this is episode two of season four of the podcast, and we're talking about a topic that has been requested so many times by um, parents that when we've asked what you'd like to hear from us, the topic of bedwetting comes up continuously. So we are going to talk through it today, and joining us for this conversation is Dr. Bob DeFore. Thank you for being here, Dr. DeFore. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Dr. DeFore is one of our pediatric urologists. He's joined us before, and we're so glad that he's here um, for a repeat episode. And to help us um, make sure that we cover this topic in a way that is meaningful, because we know that it's an important one for so many families. Um, so jumping right in here, Dr. DeFore, what are some of the common causes of bedwetting in children? Yes, thank you. So bedwetting is very common, and we see a lot of patients with, with bedwetting in our healthy bladder clinic. Most children, probably by age six or seven, I would say 90% of children will have uh, day and nighttime bladder control. Up to about 20%, and the numbers kind of vary, maybe 10 to 20% of five-year-olds will still kind of wet the bed, either intermittently or every night. And so it's a very common, very common condition, something that pediatricians see very, very frequently. And, um, and then uh, sometimes they get referred to our, you know, um, to our attention. But it's very common. Um, the causes are sort of um, varied. It can run in families that we see that very often. Sometimes the parents will say, well, oh, I wet the bed until I was 12 or 13. Or older siblings will have had sort of similar issues. So it's, it's very commonly run in family. It's um, sometimes it can be due to a small bladder or sort of what I described to the parents is somewhat of a developmental delay of the bladder and its capacity to store urine overnight. Um, rarely it could be a, a renal or kidney issue where the kidneys just make too much urine overnight. Um, and then sometimes it can be associated with sleep disorders or stress or um, behavioral issues. Sometimes it can be due to um, constipation. So we look at a lot of things like that when we're evaluating a child with bedwetting. And how can parents differentiate kind of between normal nighttime accidents in, you know, kind of that younger population of kids and um, or a persistent bedwetting issue in their child? Yeah. So when when children are wetting the bed, you know, intermittently in the first six months after they are sort of, quote, toilet trained, you know, that's not too unusual. Sometimes I have some little relapses and, um, you know, kind of starts and stops in their, in their potty training sort of journey. But if they're still wetting the bed sort of at school age, you know, um, every night or most nights of the week, and it's starting to be sort of uh, an issue for the child as far as their self-image and they can't go to sleepovers and things like that, then that would be sort of the time to kind of bring it to the attention of the pediatrician initially and, and kind of seek some, some guidance there. Um, the other sort of um, thing that would, would, would sort of trigger an investigation if the child were dry for six months or more after toilet training and then start to have, you know, nighttime control issues. So that would be sort of another reason. Um, the other sort of associated symptoms that would, would maybe 
prompt uh, a referral to urology is if the child had had recurrent urinary tract infections or if there was persistent daytime wetting symptoms, then, and, and we call that voiding dysfunction, then it might be appropriate to kind of go ahead and seek the um, sort of the uh, a consultation with a urologist. So you mentioned in kind of when you were sharing some of the common causes that there can be psychological or emotional factors at play. What types of things could impact a child um, that parents could be looking out for? Well, the, the first thing I tell parents is that it's not the child being lazy. It's not the child being willful most of the time. That would be kind of unusual. And so we always kind of tell the parents to kind of to be patient as best you can. I know it's frustrating. I know the child gets um, sort of uh, upset and the parents get upset sometimes and you have to change sheets or, you know, you ruin mattresses and it, it can be very frustrating for everyone. So, so taking a step back and just taking any negative connotation away from the child's bedwetting is, is really the first step. And then, um, you know, if the, um, again, if the child doesn't seem too bothered by it and the parents aren't really bothered by it and maybe, you know, they're not quite into the sleepover era, you know, then it's fine to observe, you know, bedwetting uh, if there's no other associated symptoms because most children will grow out of it. And I tell parents that usually, um, even for persistent bedwetters, puberty is usually sort of the end of that it's pretty rare for adolescents to continue to wet the bed, and I would say probably less than 1%, you know, still wet the bed after puberty. So, so with a little bit of time, a lot of things like this get better. Can bedwetting be a sign of an underlying medical condition? As an isolated symptom, typically not. We will do some limited testing if a patient comes to us and they have sort of nightly bedwetting and the and the pediatrician has tried sort of the typical things like limiting fluids before bedtime, having the child go to the bathroom right before bedtime. And they'll even sometimes do something called a lifting technique, which is um, where they will take the child to, to go to the restroom one more time, say, before the parents go to bed. So if the child goes to bed at 7 and the parents go to bed at 10, they'll maybe take the child back to, to, to go to the bathroom one more time. Um, I never uh, advise the parents to kind of interrupt their own sleep cycle. So, um, so uh, you know, waking the child up in the middle of the night or having the parents get up and take the child, I usually don't recommend that so, because that's very disruptive. It can maybe work a little bit in the short term, but it's not a good long-term solution. So what about a long-term effects or complications associated with untreated urinary incontinence of any type yeah. in childhood? Yeah, great question. So, you know, as a urologist, we, we um, are certainly concerned, you know, with the patient's quality of life and their, and their urinary tract health and, their, and their, um, their continence. The sort of the end sort of organ for us is any effect on the kidney. And so, you know, bedwetting as an isolated symptom would be very low risk. Um, type of condition from a kidney standpoint. And so it typically never causes any sort of long-term kidney concerns. If a patient has sort of intractable bedwetting and, and has failed sort of all the typical interventions, we will sometimes do testing like an ultrasound to look at the kidneys and bladder just to kind of make sure we're not missing some anatomical issue that could be presenting as bedwetting. But that would be unusual for us to find something that's concerning. So an anatomical issue would be something like the child was born with that one of those organs wasn't quite typically developed. Is that right? Yeah. So there's there there would be sort of rare symptoms. Uh, I'm sorry, rare conditions of the urinary tract that could lead to incontinence. And so we um, we will sometimes you know find some 
you know, aberrant drainage of the kidney or, or a, a bladder malformation or some atypical sort of development of the bladder or urinary tract that would lead us to, um, you know, do additional testing. But, but with isolated bed, bedwetting, that would be pretty unusual. So you had mentioned there are a couple of strategies that, um, you know, parents can use to, you know, kind of as those first-line interventions. What are some of those dietary or lifestyle changes that might be able to help reduce? Yeah, so the first thing is we don't have the parents restrict food or um, fluids um, for extensive periods, you know, during the day, thinking that maybe they won't, you know, uh, wet at night. But we do kind of recommend a couple hours, you know, before bedtime restricting fluids, maybe after dinner time, after bath time you know, start to kind of limit the amount of fluid intake. And that's challenging. You know, kids want to go get a drink of water. They want to get out of bed. They want to get something else to drink. You know, it is a, a bit of a challenge sometimes. But that would be sort of the first line sort of intervention. Of course, going to the bathroom right before bedtime, you know, would, would, would also be some sort of general advice. And that's something that we would probably start with. And then trying to avoid things that can kind of stimulate the urine flow overnight. We call it the four C's, and it would be like caffeine, which obviously causes your kidneys to make a lot of urine, uh, carbonated liquids, which can kind of cause spasms of the bladder, citrusy-type drinks like orange juice, which can, again, can kind of stimulate the bladder and cause some bladder spasms, and then chocolate, which has uh, caffeine in it. So those we call the four C's or sort of lump them together as bladder irritants. And so we would try to to um, to kind of... Uh, uh, limit some of that, you know, before bedtime. And I, I tell a, a story when we first started doing telehealth and you're, you're for the first time, you're sort of seeing families in their sort of home environment. And I was doing a telehealth appointment with a patient who was having terrible bedwetting in their teens and, and was still wetting the bed every night. And so when I did the telehealth, they were sitting around the kitchen table. It was about five o'clock at night. And the child, the, the teenager was drinking about this huge glass of this brown liquid. And I was like, oh, what's, what's, what's he drinking? And then the mom's like, oh, he loves his nightly coffee. And I was like, oh, that's like 64 ounces of, of coffee. And, and I was like, it's decaf, right? And she's like, oh no, it's, it's caffeinated. And I was like, well, I think that we have found the, the mysterious cause for this child's terrible bedwetting that I would never would have known, you know, just having the patient come sit in front of me in the office. So, um, so those would be some things that, that would be sort of simple, sort of common sense type things, interventions before proceeding with any other sort of interventions. What other strategies are there that parents could consider or should consider talking to their pediatrician or urologist about possibly using if the bedwetting continues? Yeah, so we would also kind of screen for constipation. So because if there's a large stool burden in the pelvis, that can kind of push on the bladder and cause the bladder to spasm and, and release sort of overnight and cause wetting not only during the night, but also during the day. We would have them encourage more hydration during the day so they're not so thirsty at night and going to the bathroom regularly. And sometimes we'll even have parents um, teach their children to double void. So they'll pee and then sing their ABCs uh, and then pee again just to make sure they completely, you know, empty their bladder. And if all that does not work and if they're still wetting most nights and, again, if it's starting to become a, a sort of a social issue or a, a sort of a self-image issue for the child, then we'll offer sort of additional sort of treatment. And I tell parents there's sort of two prongs. Um, the initial would be... Um, 
something called a bedwetting alarm. And if you just Google bedwetting alarm, you'll get all the information. You don't need a doctor's order or a prescription or anything like that. You can get them on Amazon or any, you know, there are several websites and we don't have any sort of vested interest with any of the devices. But basically what they do are they're kind of a moisture detector. And so it kind of sometimes uh, it looks like a little pager. You clip to the child's uh, pajamas and it has a little sensor. And if they start to wet, it will sound an alarm like a pager and wake the child up. And then they'll go to the restroom and finish uh, and empty their bladder. And I've had parents say within a couple of weeks, they, they kind of started to understand the feeling and they would get up and go to the bathroom on their own. Just like, you know, we do as adults. If you have to, to pee in the middle of the night, you just, you wake up and you go. And so, and then I've had other parents tell me that there is, um, that they slept right through it or they were such deep sleepers and it woke everybody else up in the house, but not the child. So... Um, there's really hard to know how well it'll work with any one child. There's not like a certain subtype of bedwetting that, that says, oh, well, the bedwetting alarm is really perfect for that. So, um, but that, w- that would be sort of a non-pharmacologic or non-medication type approach to, to the bedwetting. Um, and I've had families say that there's um, they've been some good results. There's also some new technology that's very interesting. There's a device that measures, it's kind of like an Apple watch, it measures your heart rate, and there's apparently like a heart rate variation that happens before your bladder contracts and you wet at night. And so it can kind of catch it a little earlier than than, than the moisture detector. Um, they actually uh, train it with a moisture detector, um, uh, but like any new technology, it's more expensive and there's more out-of-pocket costs, and I don't think insurance companies pay for a lot of these things. So, so again, there's some interesting technology coming down, um, and, you know, that's that's sort of some other options. And parents will sometimes do their own research and, and ask about some of these products, um, and we'll discuss, you know, um, you know, those sorts of things. If they don't think that would work or if they've tried it, it, you know, and a lot of times the pediatricians will try this before they refer to us, then we can sometimes try medication. And I, the first line medication is something called desmopressin. And then I tell parents it's a natural substance. It comes from the same part of your brain where melatonin comes from. And so a lot of parents have heard of melatonin or take that for sleep problems. And so desmopressin is not a cure for bedwetting. It doesn't really affect the bladder at all. Um, It basically just tells the kidneys, hey, I'm sleeping. Don't make as much water overnight. And so they will kind of have less volume. And so that kind of helps them sort of store the urine overnight, but it does nothing to cure the bedwetting. And so I'm very clear about that. And so basically it's just a Band-Aid until they sort of grow out of it. And it can be very helpful for sleepovers, going to grandma's house, being in a motel overnight, or, you know, and you can take it every night. It's safe to do that. Or you can do it sort of intermittently um, if you've got a special event coming up. So it's really nice because you can you can take it, you know, you know, just whenever, or you don't have to wean it up or wean it down. You can just take it. It's very short acting. You take it about half an hour before bedtime. And it basically, like I said, just kind of decreases the urine volume um, overnight. The only sort of, quote, side effect or concern is you still have to restrict the fluids, you know, because otherwise the kidneys will get a little confused. And I've had one situation in 20 years um, where a child got admitted to the hospital for some respiratory stuff and got put on IV fluids and they didn't stop the desmopressin. And so the kidneys got very confused and it, it dropped the sodium level in the, in, in the bloodstream. And that was, that was not uh, a good situation. So that's pretty rare. But I tell parents... In the very unusual situation where your child would be admitted to the hospital and need fluids, then make sure they stop the medicine. So, but other than that, it, it, it's well tolerated and doesn't interact with any other medications that most children are on for other things like ADHD or whatever. 
And it's good to know that there are options. It sounds like there are kind of, you know, levels of things to try and mm -hmm. see if it works. And then there are more tools in the toolbox if you need them. Yeah. And if they fail all that, so, and sometimes we do the bedwetting alarm and the, um, the medication, again, this is after they've sort of failed all the routine basic mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Then we'll sometimes do additional testing to kind of make sure we're not missing some sort of bladder abnormality or a kidney abnormality, particularly if they've had any other issues like an urinary tract infection or if they have trouble um, with incontinence during the day, particularly if it's what we call urge incontinence, which is where the child goes to the bathroom very frequently, um, maybe three or four times an hour. Um, they can't hold it. You know, they have an accident before they get to the, to the, to the toilet. Sometimes that can indicate a small bladder or small bladder capacity and then additional type intervention like a muscle relaxant to stretch the bladder out and store more urine as necessary. And so if, if a patient comes to us with bedwetting, a lot of times they've failed bedwetting alarms. They failed, you know, desmopressin, which the pediatricians are usually very comfortable, you know, um, prescribing. And so a lot of times the patients that actually get to us will we'll need additional testing. You know, we'll take a step back. What are we missing here? What can we kind of investigate this further and see if we're, there's something else that can be be um, helpful? And there are patients of ours who just fail everything. They just, you know, they're very rare, but sometimes they have just tried every single thing that you can think of and they still have problems. And then we get to very more in, in sort of detailed sort of intervention and that would be extremely rare. But, but sometimes we have to get, get more invasive with testing and intervention, but that's extremely uncommon. So I'm curious about the genetic component that you had mentioned um, earlier on in our conversation that sometimes uh, bedwetting runs in families. What, what do we understand about how genetics play a role? Well, um, that's a great question. And, and it's very commonly understood that, that genetics does play a role. And, and so whatever, quote, bedwetting gene there is is strong among families, and um, you know if if the parents struggle with bedwetting, it's pretty common that the that the parents or the child will also have this problem, and you know if both parents had it and the siblings had it, then you're pretty much guaranteed to have it. Whether there's sort of quote genetic testing that can be done, I'm not aware of. I we we almost never you know get to that point, um, and I'm not sure how that would really change your management necessarily, but. I think it's pretty clear that it does run in families, but there's not, we don't usually refer the patients to genetics or do any sort of testing about that. Um, and, um, but it, it, it's a very common sort of history that we find, you know, in our patient population that it does run, sort of run in families. And it's very interesting because it tends to follow the same pattern. So if a parent says, oh, well, I still remember wetting the bed at 12, you can probably be pretty certain that that's the same pattern that the child's going to have. So if we're reaching families who are are struggling in this area right now, what what are some of the things um, that you would recommend as far as kind of if you're experiencing this, it's time to talk to the pediatrician. If you're experiencing this, it's time to consider a referral to urology. Yeah. So, you know, it's there, there's sort of different levels of concern among the families regarding this issue. And again, I totally understand it can be frustrating, it can be expensive, diapers are expensive, changing sheets and washing and changing mattresses is very expensive. And so I, 
I, again, I, I, I try to tell parents to just educate them on just how common this problem is and, and how it's not the child doing it on purpose. It's just it's not they're being, quote, lazy. I hear that, you know, a lot um, from families thinking that somehow, you know, it's just the child's fault that, that they're doing this. And so I, I really do spend some time initially when I'm just meeting a family for this condition, just kind of educating them on how common this is and how it's not the child's fault and they can really start to feel bad about themselves about it and, and just to do the best they can, you know, despite all the frustration to kind of take the connotation of, of negativity away. But if they're still wetting the bed um, into the school age, you know, kind of era, definitely talk to your pediatrician about it because there's a lot of things that they can do to help. And if they have tried all the routine things like behavioral and fluid restriction and even maybe a, an alarm system, or desmopressin, then I think that would be time to kind of maybe reach out to, 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 to our pediatric urology team. And we have a whole clinic for this. It's called Healthy Bladder. And so it's run with uh, nurse practitioners and doctors, and they just focus on this condition. And so they can spend a lot of time with the families. And, 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 and I tell parents it it's sometimes is um, takes some time, and I kind of – sort of use an analogy of rehabilitation after some sort of surgery. So this is sort of bladder rehabilitation. And and the bladder didn't get to this situation overnight, and it's going to take some time to get better. And depending on what the diagnosis is, and, and, and again, if they've come to us and they've failed all kinds of therapies, we will take a step back, do some testing, and all non-invasive, usually ultrasounds. Um, we can do flow tests. We can do nerve conduction tests of the sphincter and the bladder and see how well those structures are working together, how well the child empties, we can kind of assess for constipation, um, and and then kind of come up sometimes with a more precise diagnosis. And sometimes if they failed everything, we find, well, hey, you've got a bladder capacity that's half what I would expect for a six-year-old. So like, for example, a six-year-old should hold about eight ounces. Um, and so that's about 240 milliliters. And so this, this bottle of water, you know, is um, 500 milliliters. So if they drink this whole bottle of water, they'd have to pee twice through the night. So, you know, it kind of helps getting parents understand, you know, kind of, kind of some of the anatomy and the physiology. But if they have sort of failed all the sort of routine things, then it's time for the urologist um, to kind of become involved and, and, and maybe do a little bit of testing to kind of see exactly what the, the, the problem is. And, and then we can kind of focus more sort of uh, intervention, sort of more focused on exactly what the issue is. Is, is the problem the bladder's too small or is the problem they're not emptying their bladder? Is the problem they're you know, the urine is backing up to the kidneys, things like that. So we can definitely do, um, you know, a lot of sort of non-invasive testing to kind of figure out what's going on and pinpoint um, therapy to kind of get to the root of it. And usually I would say the vast majority of the time we can figure it out. Well, Dr. DeFore, you have um, expertly answered all of the questions I had. I feel so much better informed now. Thank you so much. Um, do you have any final thoughts or words of encouragement or wisdom um, anything that maybe we didn't touch on that is important to make sure that we share with anybody who may be listening? I think the, the main, I think, take-home message is that this is very common. A lot of families struggle with this, um, that, you know, it, it can be embarrassing. Children don't want to go to sleepovers. They don't want to have to wear a pull-up you know, over at their friend's house. And so we get that. And, it, and, and, and child at six or seven that's still wearing a pull-up at night, and none of their sort of 
friends that they know of do that can be very embarrassing for children and 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 cause them to feel really bad about themselves. And so I, I kind of I really like to kind of take a few minutes and just tell the parents how common this is, how it's not talked about, and you know a lot of times the, the child feels bad. I had one family that they lived out in the country and um, they didn't even know the child was still wetting because he was taking his underwear and, and taking it out into the quote burn barrel, which I'd never heard of before, but apparently, you know, that was something they had on the farm and was, was getting rid of his underwear. And so I, I try to take, um, take all the negativity out of it and just say, Hey, this is a medical condition. This is something we can treat. This is something we can figure out. The good news is it typically doesn't harm the kidneys. Um, and a lot of times parents are worried about that. They're like, we're really just worried that the kidneys are going to be affected. And so a lot of reassurance goes uh, so, sort of a long way there. And so once we've kind of established how common it is and that we can do some sort of simple things initially, and if it doesn't work, we can try a little bit more as far as intervention. But most of the time, we can figure it out. Thank you so much for your time today to teach us about this topic and I love that message at the end that it isn't negative it's a medical condition and so many kids struggle with it thank you for your time you're very welcome thanks for having me on absolutely we're so happy to have you you've been listening to the young and healthy podcast thanks so much we'll see you next time this episode of young and healthy was recorded on January 24th 2024 The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris, and our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.